Greetings and salutations. My name is Tyler Illinick, and this is Raven's Rule, the podcast that chronicles all things 90s can rock. In this episode, I speak with Jay Semko of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan's The Northern Pikes. Before we get into the, the 90s and what Northern Pikes and yourself did in the 90s, can you maybe set the scene in Canada, both as a music fan and as an artist in like the mid to late 80s? What was, uh, what was going on here in this country? Well, you know, it's interesting in the uh, in the 80s, I mean, we really, the Northern Pikes began, I guess, really early 1984 as a result of, you know, a bunch of other bands kind of breaking up. <laughs> I really, that's what it is, because we were all from other bands. We all knew each other. Three of us had played in a band called The Idols, and I played in a band with Brian called The Maximums, and we were sort of working on a bunch of different things. But anyway, when we started in early 84, we were a guitar you know, kind of a guitar pop rock band. And I mean, there weren't, you know, where we were, where we were in Saskatchewan at that time, which was a somewhat little bit isolated area at the time. I mean, you know, it wasn't that long before that, that we actually got, you know, like cable TV, <laughs> stuff like that. We were, <laughs> we were a little behind the rest of the country in some ways, but, but because of, of our isolation, we were able to just kind of develop our own, our own sound. And and we were a guitar group, and for the first kind of year and a half of our existence in the Northern Pikes, we wanted to work. We were trying to make money to save up for our indie recordings. And uh, so we talked to our agent, Robert Hodgins, and just said, man, we just want to go out and play. And back then you could, if you were a cover band and you were half decent, you could play six nights a week in bars. You know, and that was throughout the Western provinces. And so he did. We just wanted to get out and play. So we, we played cover songs. We were not a great cover band. We mainly because, of, you know, there was so many so much music at that time that was keyboard oriented and, and synth oriented. And, and we didn't have that. So we would do, you know, two guitars, bass and drums versions of those types of songs sometimes. It was kind of like Leonard Skinner plays Duran Duran or something. You know, it was a bit of a... <laughs> strange strange mutation but at the same time we did you know we did present the songs the cover songs and for the they kept booking us anyway let's put it that way they kept booking us so <laughs> we were able to work and we played places like you know you do a week in Moose Jaw and then you go for a week in Swift Current and then you go for a week in Estevan and we can Salver and we can Miller and then et cetera et cetera and uh, so when we actually first got out to Toronto and that was I guess just around the time of the release of our second indie album called Scene in North America, by the time we got out there, there there was a scene already kind of happening with guitar-based kind of rock, and that was late 1985. I guess it was fall of 1985 when we got out there, and and it was interesting because there were other groups that were, you know, along the same line in in some respects. Obviously, you know, obviously everybody has their own sound, but I mean. In terms of instrumentation and guitar rock groups, there was, you know, there was us and there was 5440, there was Grace of Wrath, Blue Rodeo, and just after that, I guess, was a tragically hip. There were lots of lots of bands that were, you know, kind of, not exactly the same as us, but doing somewhat, living in the same world, more or less. And that was not really anything other than, it was certainly not planned, we never planned 
our music. One thing we did with the Northern Pikes is sort of was that I think is the reason we actually were able to sustain ourselves and, and be a little more of an interesting band is that we, we, we didn't follow the trends, whatever the trend was at the time. I, I, by the time the Northern Pikes started in early 1984, we'd all been in other bands. We kind of realized that if you keep trying to chase whatever is, is happening at the moment, dial or whatever, you'll never catch up. You'll never, you know, so there's trial and error. And the nice thing is we'd all started very young. So even though, you know, we were kind of somewhat veterans of of traveling and, and the road and playing in, in both original bands and cover bands, by the time the Northern Pikes started, we, even though we were in our early 20s, we had we had a lot of experience. We'd been playing for a while there. So, so it was kind of an eye-opener. When we first got out to Toronto and really got into what I would say kind of the mainstream of, of Canadian rock music, and, and it was very interesting to go, wow, there's other bands that are kind of guitar-type bands doing what we're doing. And uh, because there weren't that many, there really weren't when we were when we were starting to roll, you know, out in out in Western Canada. So that scene, I guess, sort of developed. And what what happened was record labels started signing groups like ourselves and Do Rodeo and and some of the other groups that I mentioned there, you know, to record deals. Which really what that meant at the time was you had a bigger budget. You know, indie records were they when we did our two independent albums with the Northern Pikes, we were those were self-financed, and that was just from scrimping and putting, getting money together from the gigs that we were playing. And really, by the by the time we went to Toronto on our, you know, our first trip out there in the fall of '85, we had not really completely found our, our sound, but we were we knew that we wanted to be a band that didn't play cover songs anymore, and that had kind of slowly weeded itself out to the point where, like I said, by the fall of '85, we, we weren't really getting the gigs. <laughs> The cover band six nights a week in a bar gigs anymore, so we had to kind of commit to like, what, are we a recording act? Are we, is this for real? Or are we just going to play other people's songs for money in bars? And you know, not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that. It's just you know, you have to decide what are you going to do. And so we took the leap, and as a result, we we lost a lot of gigs, but at the same time, we gained a lot more, uh, I would say, respect and also a lot more confidence in ourselves because when we went out on the road. Once we'd sort of made that commitment, I guess it would be late 1985 to 1986, we started attracting the interest of record labels. And I think they were, you know, there was a certain confidence in the band that was starting to happen at that point. And we were getting really good play on uh, indie radio and college radio in both Canada and the United States with our, our indie albums. And that was attracting, you know, attracting record labels. So Doug Chappelle from Virgin Records was one of the A&R people who was very interested in the band. He actually flew out to Saskatoon to see us. Oh, wow. In September of of eighty five, and uh, and he he loved the band. He really did. He really loved what was going on. But one thing that was happening with us at that point is we didn't really have a consistent drummer. We we went through a lot of different drummers, and I guess the drummer we always really wanted was Don Schmid, who ended up becoming Donny ended up becoming the band the band's drummer. But he wasn't able to really commit to doing that until really, I guess mid nineteen eighty six, and when Doug saw us play. In September of '85, Doug Chappelle from Virgin Records, and he saw us play. Donnie was playing with us. He was filling in that week, and he sort of fell in love with the group as it was with Brian and Merle and myself and Donnie, with the four of us. You know, subsequent to that, we were playing with different drummers along the way, and it was really one of those things where, when Donnie came 
to the band full time in the I guess the spring of of eighty six. Then we knew we knew we kind of had the right combination of people, and you know we, I could see we could definitely see some good possibilities looming ahead. And so we were offered a record deal. I guess that was in in September of eighty six, and uh, it took a few months to I guess negotiate with the legal stuff, and then we ended up signing the deal. I guess in December, just before Christmas, in December of '86, and then we went home for five, about ten days. I think we played a New Year's Eve gig, and then we came uh, came back to Toronto and started working on the Big Blue Sky album. And and interestingly, you know, there there were a lot of there was a lot of music that was kind of they were kind of doing you know living in the same world as we were. And like I say, that was not by design. And there weren't that many groups out west that were kind of doing what we were doing, although more started developing, you know, doing guitar music. But what that evolved into was you had a bunch of bands that now have budgets, you know, to make to make records that were were really good sounding. And and not that our that not that our indie records didn't sound good because I think they they have their own character and they did sound good for their time. But when you know, in those days, in the mid '80s, it was very difficult to be an indie group. And our our realistic goal in the Northern Pikes was to get independent recordings good enough that we could get licensed and distributed by a major record label. So when we were actually offered a record deal to sign directly to Virgin Records, that was way more than we ever possibly could have imagined. It was sort of like wow. It was hard to fathom actually, you know, because it was. It was a lot of work over the, over the three three years leading up to that point, but at the same time, we had our eyes on on a goal, and and the, it was really tough to get a record deal. Not that many bands did. There were only X amount of slots, you know, with record labels. And and Doug was great. He was he was super behind the band and really loved our music, loved the vibe, loved the, loved us as people. And we went to him and and still do. He's still a really good friend. And it was sort of a real uh, a real interesting time for music. And then. Into the 90s, so really, by the time we got into the 90s, we recorded Big Blue Sky in 87, and then Secrets of the Alibi in 88, and then Snow in June was recorded in 89 into 90, and then released in 1990 in Canada. And uh, it was sort of a, it was an interesting time. Another thing that was really interesting, right, that was a big part of I think, our early success, anyway, was much music, and the fact that Doug from Virginia, he, he wasn't afraid to invest money into music videos. He could see the promotional value of that. And much was in fairly early days and they got right behind the band and, you know, gave us lots of airplay and, and you know, we made some really good videos. We were lucky. We worked with mainly, I mean, you know, for the first, for the lion's share of our career, the video director that we used was a guy named Ron Birdie. And, uh, and Ron was really good and did, Tons of videos, and we, we ended up really trusting him with with what we were doing with the music and the music videos. So it just became one of those things where it was a natural kind of evolution. But but back to your question about what was going on, it was interesting to see all these other groups kind of happening at the time. And I remember, you know, in terms of like getting a break and, and opening for other people, the two, I can remember two shows that were quite big for us, and one was opening for Luba. And another one around that time was Katie Lang. We did a couple nights opening for Katie Lang there. And they were both kind of really good shows for us because we, we weren't directly, you know, competing, for lack of another word, with another guitar, male guitar rock group. We were opening for female artists that were, you know, a little a little off-center. And 
And that was cool. It was a really, really cool thing. And that opened a lot of doors for us, I think, you know. I mean, another big thing that happened really, I guess, in the fall of 87, late August of 87, we, we opened up for David Bowie. On oh, wow. Glass, yeah, Glass Spider Tour. We did two shows. How did that, uh, how did that hook up? Well, that was through our, our, one of our managers, Ed Smeal. Our managers were Ed Smeal and Fraser Hill. They were called Mighty Music Management. And, and Ed had worked as an agent as well with the agency. And I think it was just through, through various connections. And, and we had a, a single doing really well. Like Teen Land had come out and was becoming a hit on Canadian radio. And then we were just getting ready to go down to the United States and do our first kind of tour down there as part of this tour's foreplay tour. And uh, so it was late August, and yeah, we got added to the bill. So basically, hmm. with David Bowie, it was David Bowie, Duran Duran, and us. So we were the, oh, wow. we were the, we were the find your seat group, kind of, <laughs> I guess, you know. But still, so many more people saw us than you could ever hope to be seen, you know, in a club or something like that. I mean, it was at the C&E in Toronto, which I think that held about 60,000 people. So, I mean, it was big, a big, vast <laughs> cabin wow. Playing towards so, and plus the, the hype and, and the prestige of that was really good for us, and I think that kind of in Canada anyway sort of gave us one more little notch up the ladder there. Did you uh, see Bowie backstage at all? Or? No, but we did see him. <laughs> it was a cool rock star moment actually when he first arrived for the sound check the first night we were playing there because we were in our van and we were kind of at the backstage area and there were a lot of people milling about back there and. Uh, and I, I hadn't really experienced this, the backstage vibe of that before, but there were literally hundreds of people just kind of hanging out at the back entrance to the C&E. And we were, and Finn, Craig Finley, our tour manager, he went in to, to get our passes and to get all the stuff that we needed, you know, to get through security and get into the into the building, et cetera, or into the, the venue. So we're just sitting there in the van, and then this white limousine pulled up, <laughs> and then David Bowie, he's, all these people surge towards this thing. He stands, wow. he opens the door and he kind of stands there and he sort of waves, you know, he was the cool, coolest guy in the world. He's got just some jeans and a black leather jacket and shades on. And it was rock star time. He just kind of waved and then they opened the gate and they drove in and, uh, and it was cool. So when we got in there, we got to see him do the sound check and that was really cool. And Peter Frampton, who we later ended up doing a whole American tour with, huh. I guess in, in 1992 into 93, with uh, with he was playing guitar with Bowie on that particular oh, wow. Black Spider tour. So, so it was cool. The show was very theatrical, and it was it was a great show to see. And I mean, it was it was it was fun. It was a, a very exciting time for us. Interesting, because a lot of people look at the at the Northern Pikes as like an 80s band, but really our peak years, I guess, in terms of popularity and productivity, would have been. You know, 1987 to 1993. So we're equally a 90s band as much as, a, as an 80s band. Give me a kiss. Give me a kiss. I want to find out what I miss. Like this 
June, can you maybe do? Um, I know one song is is Brian's of uh, Shane Purdy, and one song is yours, Girl with a Problem. And then, um, can you maybe do a deep dive on the writing of of Girl with a Problem, and maybe um, we'll talk a little about the video of Shane Purdy. Well, what ended up happening is, you know, around the time of Secrets of the Alibi, Brian started writing songs, and he had not really been a writer to that point, or hadn't really brought his songs to the band. It was I was kind of the I guess the guy who was writing the majority of songs, and Merle was writing some of the stuff. And I always encouraged everybody in the band to write. I just said, you know, the more writers, the better. I used the Beatles as the example where everybody wrote songs and it made them such a, a powerful songwriting band. And I, our whole thing from square one with the Northern Pikes was always have great songs. That's number one. If you, a great song is, is it. If you've got that, that can never be taken away. And it's the core of everything you do. I mean, you got to have the songs. That's always our, our thing. So, I mean, when it came to doing snow in June, like our process generally was we would exchange cassettes. We would record just kind of rough versions on little cassette recorders and, uh, you know, like just acoustic and voice or piano and voice. Or sometimes people got a little more elaborate with their their demos. But for the most part, it was just for me, I just hummed, you know, I sang the songs into a tape recorder on the acoustic guitar. And so did Brian and so did Merle. We would exchange tapes. And then Donnie would get the tapes. And Donnie was always a great kind of moderator. He, he the, the thing about Don that makes him a great rock drummer is he understands songs and he understands songwriting. 
And there's because of that, he plays accordingly, and he, he he's just one of the smartest drummers that way in terms of finding the right spots to play. Because you know, in the early days of the Northern Pikes, we had we played with a lot of really good technical drummers. You know, some guys that were really really proficient musically, but didn't get the vibe, didn't couldn't figure out what the band was all about because because we were pretty different at that time for for what was going on in comparison to what else was going on. But so with Snow and June, we exchanged songs and we would listen to them and go, Oh, this one's kinda cool, or I like this, let's work on this and and some of them we would learn to play live and others we would kind of just put in the back burner and decide what we were going to do with them and and we would send them all, you know, the ones that we decided within the band that we wanted to work on. We had a, a budget given to us by Virgin Records to record demos. So we would go in and and bang these off fairly quickly, but in you know full band mode to sort of hear what they were going to sound like. And we ended up, uh, I guess, with "Girl with a Problem." I, I was interestingly with that song. You know, I always envisioned it as kind of a kind of a, a, a Latin Latin groove kind of song. I always had this. You know, I was thinking of maracas and <laughs> you know <laughs> south of the border kind of vibe and. But it just didn't work when we tried to record it. We could, you know. <laughs> I mean, I brought the song in, and and it went through a lot of mutations. That song. I mean, I, I knew the core of it was good, and I knew, you know, I knew that the whole kind of theory behind it, you know. But it's 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 interesting. The song when when it became a, a video, Ron interpreted interpreted it as, you know, kind of a song about somebody with a problem with alcohol, which is probably fairly correct. And ultimately, I mean, with with a lot of my songs that I've written, and I've realized this, you know, in retrospect, I look at it and I go, I was, I had other characters in my songs, but they were generally mainly about me, you know. So <laughs> it was, could have been called Jay with a problem, really, as it could have been. But, <laughs> but anyway, when it came to the video, that's how Ron interpreted it. But I, I didn't really even want that to be a general, I didn't want any particular drug or substance or anything mentioned. I really didn't. I just, and that's why I kept it somewhat vague i guess in the actual lyrics of the song but we did a demo the first demo we tried to do kind of this what we would do is we go in with mitch barnett or les canton or brian orsted or don warkington those were guys that we did uh, early demos with or you know glenn ends was another engineer that we worked with but mitch mitch barnett was sort of he was in some ways a very important guy for us because he was the head engineer at this studio called Studio West, which is just outside of Saskatoon, actually right near the town of Pike Lake, Saskatchewan. And it was kind of a retreat studio. And, and Mitch would, he would arrange for us to get, you know, good deals on recording when we were, you know, independent. And sometimes he'd even kind of slither us in there in the middle of the night to do sessions and, and do some recording. And and it was good. It, it, it helped us to develop our, our chops in the studio and to reduce a little bit of the you know, red light fever that can happen, which is just being really conscious of when you're pressing record and the red light goes on and, you know, performing under pressure is really what it comes down to. So so we, we did a version of Girl With A Problem that was kind of as, I was trying to give it kind of a, a Latin sound and it, it just didn't seem to work, but we knew we had something good there. So and we did another version of it, another demo, and I remember we did also multiple demos of Kiss Me You Fool as well because we couldn't quite find the right vibe with the song. And it's interesting because both both those songs are really not necessarily traditional 
pop structures. You know, they're kind of different. The song's called Girl with a Problem, but you, you know, we added, it was late in the game that we added that part at the beginning, you know, saying she's huh. a girl, because we didn't really have that hook anywhere else. It just, <laughs> the song, it didn't have a traditional chorus, you know, with, with the title in it. So we did another demo, and then we did a third demo, actually with Fraser and Rick at a studio called Right Tracks Studio in Saskatoon, and that was with uh, Lyndon Smith another engineer that we worked with and it was uh we finally kind of got the vibe with that one we finally figured out so that version was somewhat close to what would end up being the, the final recorded version for the album but yeah no we went through a lot of different mutations it really did it was not uh not something that was that was simple by any means and with Gene pretty i remember when brian uh when Brian pre- presented this song, I remember he, he you know, gave me the cassette and said, oh, there's one song towards the end there. It's kind of a silly song, just, you know, kind of, I don't know if we even want to look at that. And, <laughs> and that was Shane Critty. And, uh, and I heard his version of it, and I thought, this is kind of catchy. It's kind of cool. And, and I, I said, well, maybe we should, maybe we should look at trying to learn that, that one as well as some of the other ones that were there. And, and he said, well, I don't know. It seems like it's too different for what the band was. And then, so then I gave the example. I said, well, you know what? That's what I thought with things I do for money. I just thought this is kind of like a little outside of what I envisioned the Northern Pikes sound to be. It was, you know, a lot more spacey and Pink Floydish sounding, for lack of another comparison. Which, you know, I, I said, well, Shane Pretty is, is different in a different way. So I, I think that's part of what is, makes the band really interesting. And I said, when you look at the Beatles, for instance, you know, they, they run the musical map, the, the gamut, you know, and it's, and I always love that. I love when artists really stretch and they try different things. And so that song, you know, it's, it was different. We hadn't really done kind of straight ahead kind of blues rock song. And it had such a, a catchy hook. And, you know, so what we had done is I said, well, let's learn it and play it live. See what, how people react to it. And I believe we were in Calgary and it was an outdoor show that I think got moved inside because it was raining. And so we played it. We played the song, or not the song, we played the show, and then we came out for an encore, and the crowd was really good, and it was in kind of this hockey rink, and I said, wow, well, that's fishing pretty, so, so we gave it a shot, we played it, and really by the second chorus, the whole crowd was singing, they, they picked up on it right away, and they got it, and uh, I remember walking backstage, you know, with everybody, and we all looked at each other and said, yeah, maybe we should record that one, <laughs> you know, for the new record. So we, you know, but it's, it's, the proof was in the pudding in terms of it, how people reacted to it live. So an, an interesting thing. So when it came time to do to do the record, we went back to Bearsville Studios. We wanted to work with uh, we, we wanted to work with Fraser and Rick. Well, we had talked about possibly trying to use another producer, but it seems one producer that we had been interested in. I remember Steve Lilly White, but he wasn't available. There were a couple others that were people that we were interested in working with, but they just didn't seem to be available. And uh, we thought, okay, well, we we enjoyed working with Fraser and Rick. I think they could work on our first two albums on version. So let's go back in with them. And But the one thing that was different is we wanted to give somebody else a crack at mixing some of the stuff just to get a different perspective. We just wanted to have some progression and we thought that would be an interesting experiment to do. So we ended up uh, contacting Hugh Padgham. And he, Hugh Padgham was and is a, a great producer and mixer. And he had worked on a lot of records that we really loved, like records by XTC and The Police. 
and Genesis. Hmm. And so we set it up so that in mid-December, we were going to, basically, we're going to try and have X amount of songs completed for Hugh to do mixing in L.A. So we were recording in Bearsville and slugging away. And the first thing we did, we were in the rehearsal barn. They have a big barn that became very famous because the Stones used that place to rehearse prior to a couple of their tours just before that. So they would come in, you know, from the chopper and rehearse in the barn and fly away. <laughs> but we actually stayed in the barn. And I remember in the early days of rehearsing there, and that was in, I guess we got there in late August. It was an interesting time for me because I had just gotten married. I got married and then went on a honeymoon for two weeks to Orlando, Florida, and then came back home and almost immediately went down to Woodstock and, and Bearsville Studios and we started working on stuff there. So, and it was so hot. I remember, you know, it was right at the end of August. It was really, really hot. And we we were in the rehearsal barn, first of all, for, we were booked in there for about three weeks, I think, three or even four weeks. So we stayed in this kind of loft that they had in the barn and we just rehearsed all day. And it was, the band was sounding pretty good, pretty tight, pretty good. And, and we came up with, you know, good arrangements of the songs, et cetera. But in that early time, I remember there was a, a tail end of a hurricane. And by the time it reached inland to where we were, it had become a tropical storm. It had been downgraded from a hurricane to a tropical storm. But holy smokes, it was just, <laughs> like I learned something interesting there because I was like, man, hurricanes are... Uh, if, if they tell you to evacuate because of a hurricane, you better go because tropical, <laughs> tropical storm, which is less than a hurricane, I honest to God thought the roof was going to blow off the barn. It was oh, wow. huge, you know, huge pine trees up in the woods there being snapped like matchsticks, and it was just like whoa. I thought we were thought we were goners there. It was a kind of a strange <laughs> night. The wind rolled in and the rain, and man, it was brutal. But we all survived. Everything was fine. <laughs> We, we kept rehearsing, and then we ended up working our way. You know, once we were, got to a certain point, then the big studio became available, the tracking studio at Bearsville. We went up and started recording, and uh, away we went. And during the course of that, we decided we were, you know, let's try some special guests here and see what will ha happen. Because there were so many great musicians right in that area around Woodstock. And I remember going to going into the town of Woodstock and there was a little club that had all these windows and there was, you know, all these sort of famous people. Like there was Rick Danko and there was, anyway, it was sort of a, uh, it was a hotbed of music and, and Garth Hudson was living there from the band. Garth Hudson being the organist and multi-instrumentalist from the band. And also John Sebastian lived around there from the Love and Spoonful. And it was really, uh, really uh, a neat place. And so, Basically, you know, our manager, Fraser, just contacted these guys directly and said, hey, would you be interested? And gave them, you know, recordings, rough recordings of what we were working on and some of our previous recordings. And they were into it. They really liked it and said, sure, I'd love to do it. So, you know, they, we did a session for Kiss Me, You Fool was kind of like live off the floor. And that was with both Garth and John Sebastian. And I mean, another guy that we had come in was Stan Celeste. And Stan, great rock and roll piano player. And he, we, Fraser knew, knew of him because of his playing with, uh, with Jackson Brown and with Crosby, Stills and Nash and with a few other people along the way. And he was just considered a, just a great rock and roll piano player. So he came in and uh, yeah, it was just, it added to sort of this 
I don't know, I guess just the, this energy thing that was happening with the band, you know, in terms of just getting new people involved and a new, a new vibe. And, and we knew a lot was on the line. It was our third record, you know, and, and version was, in, was investing, you know, heavily into it. I mean, they, we were booked in basically till the end of January. And so and we started there at the end of August. So it kind of a, a five month slot, which was, you know, a long time to spend on a record. Yeah, for sure. And a lot of money, really a lot of money invested because, you know, to have a band down there and, and the studio was not, not cheap. And, you know, to, to bring in hired gun mixers as we did with Hugh Padgham and, and Bob Clear Mountain, you know, it was an, an added cost. And, but it was just, it was a different time. And, and record labels would spend that kind of money on artists, you know, if they really believed in what was going on. So, and Doug did. He really did believe what was happening. And we were really trying to crack the band internationally. You know, there was a real effort being made and having some special guests. We also had Crystal Talapiro come up from New York. She was living in New York City and, the connection there was when when we had been doing our mixing for Secrets of the Alibi, Dawn and Merle had gone down to Montreal to see John Mellencamp play. And Crystal was playing with John Mellencamp, and they were just blown away by by her singing and, mm. and playing and, and vibe, et cetera. And so when Fraser said, well, if you could have any singer to come sing on the record, who'd you get? And they both said, oh, that was, that's who we would get. So Fraser was on a mission to, to get people involved in the record, and, and he did he did great work that way. It was very, it was and is a very personable guy, and and you know we were a good band. We had good songs happening, and people wanted to be involved, and you could tell that there was a bit of a groundswell happening in regards to the Pikes. So, you know, certain things I remember, certain stories about, for instance, Stan, the piano player. Stan came from Buffalo, and he came on the train. And he came, he came in the train. It was at night. It was about 10 o'clock at night when he got in. And they picked him up. I don't know if it was in Woodstock or one of the cities near there. But anyway, somebody picked him up, drove him back to the studio. And then he came in. And, we, and you know, Stan was quite a bit older than we were. And we, you know, being younger people, we, we thought, you know, old people just need to go to bed early or something. <laughs> so Stan came in and we said, well, oh, I guess you probably just want to get some sleep and we'll start tomorrow. And he said, what do you mean? It's a full moon, man. Let's rock. <laughs> he said, you got to use a full moon. So we're like, okay. <laughs> so we set up and we, we cut that, we cut Shane Green with a full moon, like right. Oh, wow. Right in the, in the studio. And I mean, you know, it was kind of neat. Was, there was a beautiful piano in, I guess, the mixed studio, Studio B at Bearsville. It was a Rosenborg piano. And because we were trying to keep people separate, I was playing the bass in the room with Sam when he was playing the piano when we were cutting Shane Green. And, uh, yeah, it was, I'll never forget that. I was, you know, I'm obviously, I'm concentrating on my own part, but at the same time, I'm right beside this guy. This is like a legendary rock and roll piano player doing this. <laughs> and it was, it was cool. There was, a, there was a magic that happened that night with that song. It just did, you know. Worked in a beauty salon I heard a voice inside the 
she just looks that way. <laughs> we made a date to go for a drink. I wore my jeans and she wore a mink. There was this misconception all over town that she ain't only got half of a pound. She said, Take me home, that won't be no fuss. I said, Sure, you got some change for the bus. Watching her leave, I heard the bartender say, She ain't pretty, she just looks that way. So it was a full group, full band. And, you know, it was pretty fun, actually. I remember 
shooting a video for Kiss Me You Fool, and both Garth and John were up for that video shoot. They came up to Toronto to shoot the video, and it was really a, really a neat thing. I mean, you know, to have both those guys <laughs> there in the video, and then one part of that video, they're busking out in the street. <laughs> you know, I just thought that, and like, that people, eventually somebody recognized, went, oh, you know. But I, I do remember, <laughs> you know, the video shoot for Kiss Me You Fool in Toronto. I remember we were shooting in the morning, and then uh, it was lunchtime. So we went into a restaurant, and they were, for some reason, it was an overflow area, and between the crew and everybody there, they, they we couldn't fit. So we were in sort of a separate room, and I was at a table with Garth Hudson and John Sebastian, just by fluke, and they're sitting with these guys. Hmm. And on the wall were all these uh, 45s, final 45s, old 45s. So, you know, Garth and John sort of looking at these 45s and sort of reading them, you know, and John would look at one and go, oh, that was, oh, this is the, whoever they are, the, the something-somethings. And yeah, they were from Detroit, weren't they? And Garth would say, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I remember those guys. And singing about <laughs> God or something. And they, it's like they knew it. It was like history, music history going up to the point where these guys were, they ended up standing on their chairs so they could go and look at the ones at the top like that. <laughs> it was a little wow. nerve-wracking. You just didn't want anybody to fall off, you know. But uh, <laughs> yeah. And then Garth, and I still have this, and he gave me, he sort of gave me a history of modern music. And he wrote it all down. It took him about 10 minutes. And huh. it, was, it was pretty, pretty interesting. I mean, I still have it. It's still a cool thing. But, uh, but the video shoot was really fun with those guys. It was fun. And, and, I mean, we also had Garth come up for the video shoot for Girl with a Problem. And so was Crystal. They were both there. We, that was more or less kind of a, a live vibe. I remember it was in a soundstage in Toronto. And they kind of built the stage. And I know Blue Rodeo used it back right after we did for one of their videos. I can't remember which one. But, but it was so hot. It, that was done in the summer for Girl with a Problem. And it, I'm talking like, you know, really, really as hot as it can get in Toronto and humid. Just boiling. <laughs> literally just boiling. So, and the crew was just, you know, it was really tough for them working on it. And they kept kind of down in the basement place because it was a little cooler down there. And then when it was time for a take, we'd get up there because otherwise you would just sweat so much, you know, and they'd, they'd put makeup on you for the shoot and, uh, right. and it would just run. <laughs> you know, so you, <laughs> you'd have to be makeup on, do a take and then towel off and then get it all again, you know, it's sort of a showbiz stuff. There's a lot of, there's a lot of just hanging around at music video shoots. <laughs> you know, you're just waiting <laughs> and waiting. And, and, but then all of a sudden, now you're on. Go. Go do it. So do you, do you guys, um like, go and visit, like, the set when you guys are doing, like, the stuff with the girl? And, you know, just to see what's happening? Like, not the, the non-performance footage? No. Just let Ron do his thing. And then we mm. kind of go, okay. And, well, you know, he, he ran everything by us. And, you know, we, we always talked about storylines in advance and, you know, we always had sort of a plan going, you know, like there was, and we, we had to, we had approval of things, you know, we didn't want, the only one that was, the only dicey video, the only one that, in my opinion, that I wasn't that keen on was the, the video for Twister with, yeah. you know, the girl in the rubber suit and, and nothing against her in any way. It just, the fact of the matter was, it's just not, uh, I don't know, I guess it was just, first of all, it was a strange choice for a single, in my opinion, but. But I guess they were looking for another kind of blues rock number, you know, in the, along yeah, the right. vein of of She Ain't Pretty or something. And that's really, I guess, why that song is, was chosen as a single. Did you did you fight against that at all, or did you uh, push for another song? You know, I don't remember. 
I don't remember the time. I really don't. I don't remember. I know. I know we were somewhat in agreement about believe being a single, and well, there was everything. The song everything, which was really a fun video to do because that was guerrilla style, just out on the street and drawn, and I, that was sort of fun. It was a different time, but you know, back to so in June. I mean, really, it was. Uh, you know, the whole album was kind of a pretty neat experience at the time. I mean, it was stressful, man. It was a lot of, we did long hours and we never took breaks. You know, in retrospect, that was something that I really wish we would have done. We would have just taken one day off a week, but it, but it was expensive. You know, you go down there and once you're working, you're all away from home. You're all there on a mission to work. And so you just worked. And I mean, Rick and Fraser, their apartment where they stayed and we were recording at Bearsville was just above the studio. So, I mean, they had about, you know, 30 feet to go to, to be working, to be in the, in the control room, just go down the stairs. The rest of us were at the house down the way, but we were there a long time. While we were there, other people would come and do mixing in the mix studio. I remember Twisted Sister, <laughs> you know, people came and went while we were there. And, and before, just before we left, actually Charlie Sexton was at the rehearsal barn getting ready to go in and record. It was a very active and busy place. And I mean, the town of Woodstock was great. I mean, it was, you know, it was like, just like Woodstock, 1969. It was a lot of, a lot of the people that were there ended up inhabiting uh, Woodstock, you know. Another song I really like off that record is uh, Am I In Your Way? Oh, yeah, well, that's a great song. It's a great, but it's funny, you know, Doug did not like that song. He did not want that song to be on the record originally. Doug from Virgin Records, he was not a, a fan huh. of that song originally. I think he did like it eventually. You know, once we had completed our, our final version of it, et cetera, but it was one of those borderline ones. See, that's the thing. We recorded a lot of demos. There are a lot of songs that were pretty good songs that kind of almost made the cut to get recorded for the albums, but but didn't. So so we do have kind of a, a an interesting backlog of uh, of unreleased demo stuff, you know, et cetera, which I think is kind of a kind of a cool thing for a band to have. You know, so Absolutely. And Universal ha- has that. And I, there is talk of them doing a 30th anniversary package of uh, of Snow in June. So we'll see. Hopefully that, that goes ahead either either this year or next year. Because Snow in June really, even though it was recorded in 1990, or recorded in 89 into 1990 and was released in 1990, we, we worked that record a lot for two years. And I mean, a big thing that happened too is the day the record got released in Canada, we got dropped by the U.S., branch of Virgin Records. No way. Yeah, it was really quite shocking. It was bizarre, you know, especially because Snow and June, you know, she ain't pretty. T- All three of those three singles right off the bat became really big songs and the record sold really well and was very successful. But there was inner conflict with the people at the U.S. branch of Virgin or somebody at the U.S. branch of Virgin anyway, between them and, and I think our management. So it ended up being a, a thing where we got it released in Canada, and that's what we focused on. So we toured the hell out of Canada with Snow and June. All the all the while, our management was looking for a new record deal to get Snow and June released in the United States. And it did. We ended up signing to a label called Scotty Brothers. And they ended up releasing She Ain't Pretty as a single, which did very well, very well in the, in the U.S. And got into the Hot 100 and, and didn't get played on MTV, but got played hmm. on what was called TNN, the Nashville Network. Which really? Was, yeah. They played it like crazy. It was sort of, it became, it was, it was, and you can see it now. Now, She Ain't Pretty would be considered, I guess, a country rock song, you know? Yeah, I could see that, yeah. But at that time, it was sort of in a little bit of a no man's land 
for lack of another word. But it, but it did become really popular, and it, we got I mean, some good regional airplane. By that, I mean in certain areas of the U.S. The band did really well and got lots of airplane, become really, became really popular. Other places, we couldn't get arrested. It was it's like we couldn't get, <laughs> couldn't get it all at once. You know, it was tough to be to get it all sewn together at once. And I think that's a very common problem with a lot of bands from outside of the U.S. that are trying to crack it, especially if you're not signed directly to the U.S. branch of the label because you're considered a foreign act and generally the domestic acts, you know, that they have will take priority in terms of promotion and publicity and and that kind of thing. But, you know, once the record came out in the States, I mean, there was a little bit of bad timing going on. I mean, Shane Pretty did very well for us down there. It did good. And it, we ended up touring, opening up for Peter Frampton. We did that tour opening for him for for a number of months. And that was good. It was kind of a good tour. But the day the tour ended, they released the second single, Girl with a Problem, which should have come out while <laughs> we're in the middle of the tour. So, in other words, the right. band wasn't there to promote it. It just sunk like a rock. It didn't get a chance, you know, huh. in a thing. But, oh, well, interesting adventures along the way in terms of the Snow and June thing. I mean, we ended up getting... I think five Juno nominations for that. Like, and they weren't all directly Jeez. for us. One was for, you know, engineering, I think for Fraser and Rick. And I think one was maybe for album artwork. And then I think there was single, it was Shane Pretty. And then I think it was maybe group of the year. And then I think maybe album of the year. So what was, what was it like going to the, to the Junos with uh, five nominations for the record there? It was, it was cool. Yeah, no, we all went. And, you know, I, I think I actually presented an award that night. And I think I actually did a presentation when Secrets of the Alibi was out. I did a presentation at the Genos one time as well. Yeah, it was cool. It was intimidating. I mean, we were backstage. And it was like Aerosmith was back there. And I just remember <laughs> feeling, and Randy Backman was there. And I just, uh, Bob Rock and all these kind of pretty big stars. I mean, Aerosmith, I kind of idolized them as a teenager. And there they were backstage. And I was just kind of, I was shy. I, I felt very intimidated. And, you know, but I remember... Larry Gallen came up and he started talking with us and he was the nicest guy in the world. And he was just, you know, he kind of, kind of showed us the ropes. He just sort of said, Hey, how are mm-hmm. you guys doing? And he, you know, took us around, introduced us, introduced us to a few people. And it was, you know, he was really nice. He was a really cool guy. I must say Larry was, you know, and I, I, to this day, I appreciate that because I think he could tell we were just kind of like, you know, really at the end of it all, we were guys from a, a smaller town and, you know, this mm-hmm. was kind of like, Whoa, it was intimidating. You you really felt a little bit overwhelmed. I did anyway. So yeah, we thought we thought we might would actually win one that night or you know but we never we didn't win. But oh well. Getting huh. nominated was cool, it was fun to go and hey the Junos yeah. are in Saskatoon this year. So before we move on from uh, Snow and June, can you just maybe um talk a little bit about the video for Sheen Pretty? Because that has gotta be one of the most memorable videos maybe in Canadian music history. Because, I mean, everybody knows that video. Can you describe, you know, getting the concept pitched to you, who the woman is, the, the shooting process with the claymation and all that? Anything you kind of remember about the actual shoot? And Well, first of all, I remember Doug Chappelle, the president of Virgin Canada. He, he had seen his commercial on TV, and it was a commercial, I think, for cold medication or, or allergy medication or something, where somebody was sneezing, and it had that same kind of thing that we ended up getting with the, the girl in She Ain't Pretty, where she, you know, became kind of a cartoon <laughs> cartoon for a, a, a few seconds there. And, and he wanted that concept in there. And he thought that would be kind of cool. So he went and met with the Claymation guy. And I don't remember his name. I remember he was from Quebec. And uh, 
they came up with the concept of us coming into this bar and playing and this girl who was kind of, you know, Ron Birdie, the director, he came up really with the concept and uh, we were supposed to be in sort of a, you know, as if we were in, you know, a Mexican cantina or something like that. And that was built in a soundstage in, in downtown oh. Toronto. Yeah, that was a soundstage. The exteriors of it, which looked, you know, looked quite real. That was a small model that was made of it. Oh, really? Yeah, it was a model. The exteriors were, <laughs> I think somebody's got that model. And it's just a little thing. It's no like two by three feet or something, you know. <laughs> it's interesting how that show business works, you know. But anyway, the, uh, and they, they got the cast together and then we went into the, the thing and it was a day, a one-day shoot, I think, for our part anyway. And the girl was in there. And then once I shot it, then Michael, that was the guy, the, the animation guy, the animation guy. And so then Michael, uh, he worked with it then and, and the claymation stuff. But that was done literally one frame of film at a time. So it took him many weeks to complete that. And that's working like 20 hours a day. You know, to get Jeez. to get that effect, it was a t very time-consuming process. And like I say, nowadays with the technical availability of you know CGI and everything else, I mean, you can you can do a lot just on your computer. But it was done the real thing. It was claymation. It was really done one frame at a time, and it was quite any. And we when we finally saw it, I was like, "Whoa, this is cool!" But it was, <laughs> it was an expensive video to do. That was a six-figure video, so. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, nowadays, nobody nobody ever pays that for music video. Maybe, you know, maybe Shawn Mendes or, or somebody, you know, a superstar, current superstar might maybe right. they have a budget like that. But at that time, that was, that was a pretty big budget video, although, you know, it was a different time. That was 1990 and people, record labels were investing heavily into their artists, you know. But yeah, no, the shoot was... Uh, it all went smooth. I remember that bass. I, I miss that bass sometimes that I played in that video. That's the same one that I actually played on the song. It was a 73 Precision that I bought at Manny's Guitars in New York. And I remember when I bought it, I was trying it out. And Dr. John was in there. And he was trying out <laughs> a bass, too. It was such a zoo in there because when people tried out guitars, they had all these amps. And it was like one big kind of room and everybody all playing different music at once <laughs> through loud ass. <laughs> and it was quite, <laughs> quite bizarre, actually. But I remember he bought he bought a bass and he didn't even have a case for it. He just bought, you know, it was kind of a cheap bass. And he probably maybe just needed one temporarily or something like that. But yeah, no, he bought a bass. I thought it was kind of a kind of an interesting thing. Buying a bass with Dr. With Dr. John there. Absolutely. Yeah, but the uh, no, the video shoot was we did our part, they did their part, the edits came back, they did a couple of other tweaks along the way, and then it came out and and knocked everybody out. You know, and it's it's interesting. The three videos for for She Ain't Pretty and Girl with a Problem and Kiss Me You Fool, She Ain't Pretty, interestingly enough, even though the song was I think the biggest hit song for us, the video didn't go to number one. It caught to like number four, I think, on the Much Music Countdown. And then Girl with a Problem did get to number one. And it was at number one for two weeks on Much Music. Interesting, yeah. And then uh, and Kiss Me you Fool got to number two. <laughs> I go, why, why couldn't you let it go to number one? You know, but it got to number two. Yeah. Didn't quite make it to number one, but but they were they're all really, really well done videos in my opinion. I think Ron was Absolutely. really shining and, you know, the timing was all just just right, you know, for us. It it all just worked out really well at that time. The video for She Ain't Pretty 
has people still talk about that. I think it's one of those ones that's going to live for a while. And I, you know, there's, there's yeah. a reality thing that happens with that claymation that you just can't emulate with current technology. It's, it's almost the same as analog recording. You could emulate it, but it, nothing beats doing, you know, real two inch analog tape. Exactly. Even just like that little opening and opening and outro kind of no music, just the kind of building the narrative of the video that still works. I just watched it today, actually, before the interview. It was very well done. And I mean, Ron was, he was very much a perfectionist and, and really good and really a cool guy. I mean, just a great guy to work with, you know, and he, we, we all worked well as a team. I mean, we all had a, a, a mm. good vision of what was going on with things. And, you know, I felt like, like that was a, it was a really super positive thing, us, us connecting with Ron. And, you know, it's like, they, I think whenever anybody has some measure of success artistically or in whatever way, there's usually the time, it's so much of it is timing and, and the stars lining up and meeting the right people and being in the right place at the right time. And, and it's just kind of taken for granted that you're good, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, really there's a lot of great, there's a lot of great bands out there. There's a lot of great songwriters and great artists and, but only X amount of them really become super well known. There's, you know, mm-hmm. everywhere has a lot of great artists and it's, it's just a case of, like I say, to, to go kind of to that next level. That's really what Shane Pretty did. That song, those three singles, Shane Pretty and Girl with a Problem and Kiss Me Fool, elevated the band to the point where we went, we became a theater and a hockey rink band. And, uh, mm. you know, we just played for more people. And the tour, with the first tour we did for Snow in June was an opening slot, a national tour opening for Bruce Hornsby in the range. Hmm. And, and that did really well for us. And they were great. In fact, it was one of my favorite artists, I think, that we've ever toured with, just because they were really nice people, Bruce and the band and the crew. And they were just very generous with us and uh, treated us very respectfully. And that wasn't always the case. Sometimes you do opening slots and and you're not treated that well by the, either the crew or by the artist that you're opening for, or else you just completely ignored one or the other. Do you remember a specific instance that uh, sticks with you still after all these years of uh, kind of a bad experience? Uh, just little things along. I remember opening for a band called Aztec Camera in Toronto at the concert hall, and they just they just refused to give us a sound check for some reason. It was just like, come on. What? But yeah, they just because he was, the headline artist wasn't going to do one, so they wouldn't let us do one. And those kind of things sometimes can happen. I can remember, you know, even on the Frampton tour, it was interesting that sound man for Frampton, just a grumpy guy. And, you know, he was very limiting to our, our sound guy in terms of what, you know, what, we, what they were allowed to use in the console. <laughs> and then about halfway through the tour with Frampton, the, the crew, crew bus broke down for Peter Frampton. So huh. we were there, we picked up the guys and took them to the gig basically the <laughs> favor and then we became friends and it, the the ice thawed and and they huh. were way more generous with us and you know a lot of lessons to be learned there in terms of just you know if you just talk with people once you get to know people a little bit most people are, are pretty good at heart i found they really are i think there's most people there's there's a lot of good in them some people maybe not but you know for the most part once you remove the intimidation factor and you just talk to each other like human beings you can <laughs> you can resolve a lot of issues, so so things got better for the second half of the of the Frampton tour. But yeah, there, there there have been little incidents along the way where things will happen. But for the most part, I must say, 
you know, we've been pretty fortunate in our opening act slots. I mean, so, I mean, we did that, that Bruce Hornsby tour and then, and then we did more summer festivals and then we did a full uh, theater hockey rink tour in the winter of 91. I remember (laughs) the weather was kind of bad, but we only missed one gig. The only gig that got snowed out was a gig in Kelowna. I remember we were just trapped somewhere in the mountains. We couldn't get there. But other than that, we did all the gigs. And that tour, the headline tour on Snow in June, kept getting extended because, you know, the album was doing well and the singles were doing really well. And so the first part of the tour, the opening act was was May Moore. And then it was Leslie Spit Trio. Oh, nice. Yeah. And then for a bunch of dates, it got added, tacked on at the end. And we had Crash Test Dummies open for us. And oh, wow. Yeah, they were just getting rolling at that time. They were just starting to become known they had just put out their album and i thought they were kind of cool i thought they were pretty they were fairly folky you know they had a, a folk kind of thing mm-hmm. I, I liked what it did i liked the way they kind of complimented what we were doing and it, you know lo and behold a year later they were like huge international stars you know superman song yeah became huge and they they vaulted you know completely to another another level Tarzan wasn't a ladies' man. He'd just come along and scoop him up under his arm like that. Quick as a cat in the jungle. But Clark Kent, no, there was a real gent. He would not be caught sitting around in no jungle scheme Dumb as an ape doing nothing Superman never made any money Saving the world from Solomon Grundy Sometimes I despair The world will never see another man Like him Hey Bob Soup had a straight job Even though he could have smashed through any bank in the United States He had the strength But he would not Folks said his family were all dead. Planet crumbled, but Superman he forced himself to carry on. Forget Krypton and keep going. Superman never made any money for saving the world from. Solomon Grundy And sometimes I despair The world will never see another man Like him Tarzan was king of the jungle And Lord 
start to wind this down can you talk a little bit about um neptune um the hiatus and uh kind of where the pikes are at now neptune we ended up working with rob jasko and rob jasko was an assistant engineer uh for hugh pageant when when hugh did his mixes at a&m studios in los angeles for snow and jew and rob had also worked with bach clear mountain and he, he was the guy he was the right hand guy to everybody at A&M Studios in LA. And so we contacted him because we thought, well, let's work with somebody different and somebody, you know, a young guy that's sort of hungry and see what it's going to be like. And it was great. We ended up working with him. It was different, obviously. Once you've done three records with, you know, we did three records with Rick and Fraser and then to switch to a different guy was a was an adjustment, but it was good. We, we, we kept to schedule. We wanted to do the record fairly quickly. We didn't want to, kind of mess around so did you feel any kind of extra pressure with you know coming off the success of snow in june i would say yes we felt some pressure it was sort of a well it was a strange time because we you know we kind of had to regroup and uh you know after being dropped from the u.s branch of virtue for snow in june and, and re-signing the scotty brothers and then uh you know it was just a we, and our management we parted ways with our management fraser was our producer and also manager so 
he and Ed, Ed Schmiel, you know, we parted ways with our, our management. We used a different producer. And to be honest, we were getting burnt out. We kept playing and playing and playing. And we really should have taken a break. I think we were burnt out. We were kind of sick of each other. And, you, you know, you grow up. You're getting a little bit older. And, and you sometimes you need some space. And I, I don't think we gave ourselves enough space. I think, you know, and then we did feel the pressure. We really did. There was pressure feeling there was a feeling of pressure happening on us and and you know we started to have conflicts within the group but it was just one of those things where you, it was a slow deterioration once the record came out we did a we did a promo tour a quick blitz promo tour across the country and, and in some ways it was successful in other ways it was sort of it created a lot of conflict it was just a lot of we put we played so many shows night it's like fly play fly play fly play and it was party time too so you know we were had booze going on and a lot of, you know, sub- subsequent problems that happened as a result of those kind of things. And yeah, it ended up being kind of a, I mean, the, rec- the record itself, making the record was fun. I mean, we were in LA for three weeks working with RJ and then we went up to Toronto. We were at Metalworks for three weeks and then we went down for the last part of it to Blue Jay Studios in Concord, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. There's 15 songs on that record. How many guys did you guys cut for that album? That's a big album. Oh, it was a big album. And I mean, we, we bit off more than we could chew in some ways. We should have just focused on 10 or 11. But because it, because we knew it wasn't going to come out on vinyl, they had told us that in advance. It was just going to be CD. We thought, well, let's do more songs, So, which isn't always a good idea, you know. But you know, <laughs> ultimately, I think that's a bit of an underrated album, that album. There's, I think there's some pretty good moments on, on Neptune. I think there's some... Some pretty good stuff. Yes, it could have been probably trimmed down to to a shorter album with less songs, but then it wouldn't seem like the same album to me. So I guess it just just depends on on how you want to look at it. See, Snow and June we encountered too because Snow and June was it was good. we had to fit them all on vinyl, and hmm. and it was a bit of a challenge. So you know that's why when the the best of album came out in their hits and assorted secrets came out a number of years later, there were three songs that were originally recorded for Snow and June. It was What She Wants, Beautiful Summer, and might have been uh, Wasting Away. Those were songs that were kind of, you know, spares. They were kind of spare songs. <laughs> so it, for one reason or another, didn't seem to fit onto the Snow and June record. and physically couldn't fit on it because it was still coming out on vinyl. But yeah, no, Neptune, you know, like I say, it was kind of a slow dissolve, and, and we ended up breaking up, really. We kind of planned our breakup, strangely enough. And How so? Well, we, we wanted to do this live record, and we, we didn't really want to make a big announcement, like the band is breaking up or anything. We didn't want to do that. We just wanted to kind of just not play, you know, and kind of let it breathe kind of thing. But somebody found out in Winnipeg, and that was our second last show. Somehow, and we just got flipped with phone calls and, and press people calling and and I didn't think that many people actually cared, but but they did. <laughs> They did, and we ended up having to talk about this in an interview, and it was really very surreal and bizarre, because I, I remember we played in Winnipeg, we played in the hockey rink where the Winnipeg Jets played at that time, huh. and we sold it out. We had, I don't know, 12,000 people in the hockey rink, oh, and wow. I remember coming off the stage and going, why are we quitting? <laughs> <laughs> why are we do you know, and then the last gig we did, which was very anticlimactic, we played at a fair in Fort Francis, Ontario. And it was hmm. kind of in the middle of nowhere. And it was just kind of 
was sort of a smaller type type gig, but we ended up staying at like a fishing camp that was near there. And it was literally, it was a fishing camp. I mean, the, uh, I remember at supper the night before, like we got there the night before and we had such a fun time. We played cards and hung out. The guy had said, the guy who owned the fishing camp said, how many are there? I says, okay, well, that's how many fish I need to go catch. And this is in like in an hour, he caught like all these pickles. <laughs> he caught all these pickles and, and they, they had them ready to get. It was so good. I just remember the fishes. This was so tasty and, and good. But they ended up, uh, then we played the gig the next day and we all went our separate ways. And that was right at the beginning of July. And uh, I think the last gig was June 30th. Or maybe, yeah, it was because it was the day before Canada Day, I think. And then everybody went their separate ways for a number of years, and we all did different things, I guess. And and then when the, the when the label put on uh, the best of album, hits and assorted secrets, we started talking about that, and they wanted our input about that. That was in 1999, and uh, we all started talking amongst the band and sort of threw it out like, why don't we do a tour and promote this? You know, there's something coming out. So we did, and and really, we haven't kind of looked back since. I mean, that was we went out as as a five piece with the original four people, Merle and Brian and Don and myself. And we had Ross Nikafork, the keys on that tour too. And he had been touring with us since snow in June. And he actually played on the Neptune record as well. And the tour was actually quite successful. And it was sort of like, Oh, well, let's just, let's keep playing. So we went, actually, we went in the studio to record truest inspiration. We went with David Baxter in Toronto to do that album. And it was, uh, it was kind of fun actually, you know, it was fun to be back in Toronto. Three of us were staying at a house. Brian was living in tr- Toronto at the time. And it was really uh, kind of an interesting time. But I feel like that's really quite a good record. I think Truest Inspiration is a very interesting album. One of my faves. You know, it's a little darker, a mm. little different. Certainly didn't have, uh, you know, an obvious single on it to speak of, you know. But it was it was a fun record to do. And we, we kept to our schedule. We did it basically over the course of two months in the fall of 2000. And put it out. And then we tried to be a full-time band. We had to, a certain amount of money that we needed to make every month. And so we went on the road. And within a couple of months, we realized that if we keep doing this, we're going to just break up again. Because this is not hmm. a good thing. We're, you know, you're playing in a smaller town, in a bar, on a Monday night. You just fill in the blanks. And it's uh, and you you couldn't really take a day off. You needed to be working all the time. And it was... It was just, you could see the writing on the wall. We are going to be fighting and breaking up again here. This is going to happen. So we stopped doing it. And uh, we, we realized, look, we, we're better to play, to be more selective about when and where we play. And that's how that kind of what we've kept since then. I mean, we went, a couple of years later, we went into the studio with Ross Nikafork, actually engineering, which was fun because he was had been a keyboard player and was kind of a, kind of a fifth guy for a few years there. So we went into Ross's place in Saskatoon and we did the It's a Good Life album. And that was done fast. We did that record in less than a month. And it was really just very quickly, mixed pretty quickly too. And I think it's kind of a cool record. It's just such a neat, fresh vibe to it. And yeah, we put that out. We put a couple of singles. We signed, ended up signing with a, a different label. We were signed to Sextant Records. Truest Inspiration came out independently or through Outside. And uh, It's a Good Life came out through Sextant, which was distributed through EMI at the time. So you guys are still doing it, man, which is really cool for fans like me to... Yeah, you know, you I mean, know? We, hadn't, we, hadn't, we hadn't put out any new, new music. We kind of, after It's a Good Life, 
There was another Best of album that came out, I think, in maybe 2009 called Platinum. Then there was, and we also did a live album called Live 2000 that came out, I guess, in 2000. <laughs> and that was when we, when we were first kind of back playing together again. And, uh, yeah, well, you know, didn't put out any new music. Then there was another new album, that, or another, a third best of that came out in 2016 called Icon. <laughs> you know, they have their Icon thing. Right, the series kind of thing, and yeah. that's a common thing. The Mabel, you know, the labels do that to just keep milking stuff and yeah. It was good for us because it just keeps the band's name out there. And then uh, and then 2017, they did the kind of re-release, whole meal deal package of Big Blue Sky. And yeah. around and w- what happened, too, is, you know, after It's a Good Life, we played with Ross Nicofork for a little while. Well, Merle, really, he played with us until about 2005, late 2005. And then he, you know, he just wasn't into it. He wasn't into playing. He wasn't into traveling on the road. Was enjoying his job, and it was hard for him to to get off work. And he just kind of he had to be honest. I think he just kind of had lost interest in it. He just didn't have the drive. And we obviously we've maintained our friendship. I've been friends with Merle since we were in grade eight, so you know that's not an issue. And, and he's actually come. And uh, I mean, we in 2012, the Pikes got inducted into the Western Canadian Music Hall of Fame. And so we are the original. Nice. We got together and we played a few songs at the at the awards ceremony with the original people, which was kind of fun. And, for sure, uh, yeah. You know, we got an award in 2018 for She Ain't Pretty from SoCan. It's considered a SoCan classic now because it got <laughs> played over 100,000 times on Canadian commercial radio. So so the four of us, were they brought the four original guys out to Toronto for that. And that was kind of fun to get the guys together. But, you know, we played with Ross as our, key, as our fourth guy for a few years on keys. And then he couldn't, he was, he wasn't able to play for a while. So we played as a trio and we did that played as a trio for really till 2016. And then sort of around that time or just before then, Brian had started doing things with Kevin Kane from the Grapes of Rat as a duo, Kane Potvin. And they ended up recording an album together and, and playing a bunch of shows together in Canada. And, you know, then we were thinking, that if we do this tour, this Big Blue Sky tour in the fall of 2017, we need to have a fourth person because we want to, you know, we want to be true to the sound. And, we, and the Northern Pikes always have been two guitars, bass, and drums. And and we did do it as a trio with just one guitar, bass, and drums. But, you know, it was a little bit, a little bit more bare bones. Kind of cool in some ways. I enjoyed playing as a trio. But uh, it was just time to go back to a, being as a four-piece. And Kevin was the obvious guy. We played a couple of kind of, mm experimental gigs i guess in 2016 with him and uh it was really good it was such a natural fit and and he just kind of kept playing with us since then and became our fourth guy and it's just such a natural fit he's we couldn't have asked for anybody more perfect to take the place of merle and, and you, you can't really take the place of merle. merle's a unique musician and singer and songwriter so you know and and the like you know i i have nothing but the highest respect for merle and for his his talent and I'd love it if he went back in and started recording music again. And maybe he will. Maybe he will at some point. Who knows, you know? So, yeah. but the, uh, yeah, Kevin kept playing with us. And then during the course of the Big Blue Sky tour in the fall of 2017, we ended up uh, getting a tour of the National Music Center in Calgary. And I, I was aware that, that it had opened up and that they had a studio there, but I really didn't know anything about the studio. We got a tour and it just blew us away. We were like, wow, this is like, as good as or better than any 
top studio we've been in. And I mean, we recorded, you know, A&M in LA and, and Blue Jay and Concord and Metalworks in Toronto and, you know, Power Station in New York. And we, we had been in a lot of great studios, world-class studios. And so between the, all of us, we were all blown away by the studio there at Studio Bell, oh, cool. Studio Bell National Music Center. And, and so we made arrangements after the, after the tour to, to, to go in there. And so we went in. I guess the first session was in February of 2018. We did 10 days there. National Music Center, and we really focused on cutting the songs live off the floor. And we did do some some overdubs, but I mean, the whole vibe of all of those, every one of those songs was cut as a group. It was never individual. Mm-hmm. So so there's there's a, a core recording of everybody playing at once. So we did two sessions. It was in February of 2018. The other one was in uh, July of 2018. And I guess really we had everything kind of sewed up by kind of the end of October, really. We set a release date, and we had to kind of negotiate a deal with Universal Music to put it out. And so it came out June seventh of twenty nineteen. She's a collection of things she shouldn't have done. All her contradictions. Blend into one Sorry excuse To say goodbye While breathing in Addiction to losing her way. She never thinks about friction or how it might play. A poultry excuse, a way to find while seething in daily disguise. I think the songs are good, and I think there's a real fresh sound going on there. I agree completely. I don't think we sound dated. I think we sound kind of 
as current as anything else and songs are fun to play live and yeah so we're just keeping on doing it so the stuff we've been doing recently in october we did five shows out in the maritimes in nova scotia and new brunswick and then we spent i think 10 days in recording studio near where brian lives brian lives in lunenburg nova scotia and we uh, recorded hmm. with a guy named john adams who's a great engineer so what we've done is is basically an acoustic album. Many of the songs from So and June have been re-recorded in very stripped down versions. No, oh, cool. Yeah, so we're still that's still kind of a work in progress. We'll start we're still working on that. So we're actually doing more sessions coming up and uh yeah, and then it looks like we're gonna actually record a, a new band, a new full band record of new material this year. And it looks like it's, oh, wow. yeah, it looks like it's going to happen in Vancouver in the spring. Cool. And I don't know when that will be released, but I, I, I don't think it'll actually come out probably till next year. Things always seem to take longer than you think they would. And it's always a bit of an interesting journey whenever you make a new album. You never, you never really know what's going to happen until you're there. So, but we do know that we're going to be doing it in, in Vancouver and, uh, just trying to figure out the dates when that's going to happen. I think the acoustic stuff, I think they'll probably release some, I don't know if you'd call them singles, but or, or feature tracks from it leading up to the release of the full album, which would probably be, I'm thinking probably late summer, early fall for the acoustic release. And then with the, the album of new, new stuff, probably the early part of 2021, I think. So a lot to look forward to for Northern Pikes fans coming up in the next uh, little while. So I know you got to get out here. You got some uh, personal stuff to take care of. So I'll get you out on this question. Um, I've been asking all the guests to contribute three songs to a playlist I have on Apple and Spotify. Um, two kind of slash hits, singles, well-known songs, and one deep cut um, off their 90s material. So if you can pick three songs that fit that bill between Snow and Jew and Neptune, that would be great. Well, I would say she ain't pretty, and I would say girl with a problem. And then, as the the mystery track, I would say <laughs> I would say chain of flowers from Neptune. Oh, nice! Kind of an interesting song. That one we actually wrote as a group. We sort of put a bunch of different parts together, and uh, and it became truly kind of kind of a group a group effort, as it were. You know. Well, excellent choices, sir. But it's been great talking to you. Thank you for uh, listening to me ramble on for a while here. No, thank you for rambling, <laughs> sir. It was, it was uh, my pleasure. <laughs> hopefully hopefully we've got, you'll have something that you can put together there, you know. Thank you so much for joining us today on Raven Drool. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can do so in a variety of ways. First, you can go to patreon.com slash ravedrool, become a patron, get access to deleted audio, get advanced notes of the guests, and get a chance to submit questions to those guests for an exclusive Patreon Q&A. Visit redbubble.com, search Rave Drool, and you can buy various goods with the Raven Drool podcast logo on it. Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to this. And if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more Naughty's Can Rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. And lastly, if you're looking for music, we have an official playlist on Apple and Spotify. Currently, it's curated by myself with tracks that I've selected, but as you heard during today's episode, eventually, it'll be curated by the guests themselves. Until next time, friends, 
Take care.